0: The year was 2006. George W. Bush was president. The U.S. was involved in a few shameful wars, and the economy was booming for just a bit longer under shady circumstances. I was a film nerd writing commentary on cinema and fell in love with a great weepy of our time, as A.O. Scott described it called Brokeback Mountain, which starred Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal as closeted gay lovers in Wyoming, mid-1900s USA. This is a lovely, moving film about star-crossed love, hidden, forbidden love, the times, and how people bear their circumstances it's a moving emotional film epic and sweeping and lovely and i was excited for it to garner the praise it deserved at the oscars it won best director for ang lee it won best script but it lost best picture to a movie called crash which is about race relations in los angeles basically I remember a little bit about Crash, not nearly as much as Brokeback, because it's just not nearly as great of a film. But I do remember Matt Dillon being a corrupt, dirty cop and sexually harassing Thandie Newton. And I remember Ryan Phillippe as the protege young cop wanting to be the better man, but still shooting and killing an unarmed black man. 2006 was an interesting time and a formative decade in my life. Race was not the big deal that it is today or had been previously. This was an era mostly outraged by George W. Bush's hawkish global policies and the financial ups and downs that would soon follow. and the ascendancy of Barack Obama, who would take office two years later. And it didn't seem poignant or important or necessary for a film like Crash to win a Best Picture. But now, as I record this podcast in 2020, it does somehow seem like Crash is the more important film. And I hate to say that. But here we are, in the U.S., politically, having achieved gay marriage, but having not achieved something like racial harmony. And it's a shame, and it saddens me. I thought, as a cinephile of the time, that an unyielding love story rang truer and stronger than a story of the complicated, unfortunate misunderstandings between different communities in a big city. But it feels like we're all much more eager to engage in the themes discussed in the film Crash versus the inner existential difficulties of Brokeback Mountain. We're much more fascinated somehow still by race relations and are dealing with authority and it does make sense given that we're living in the era of donald trump as president which itself feels like an extreme injustice to i believe the majority of americans and this is all couched within the context of quarantine and coronavirus which i've been talking about as having an adverse effect on our psyches, our lack of connection to each other, our alienation and isolation, Uh, and I think we have to see it in this way as well. So this is Keith thinking. I'm Keith, and I'm thinking in a contrary way, as usual, about the current zeitgeist, not because I endorse police brutality or I think racism doesn't exist, but because I want to look at things rationally and with reason. I want to tame our emotional response to this, which is so hot-blooded and angry and hateful, even in the cause of something virtuous. I think it's important to dissect what's going on here, to examine it carefully, and to think about what we're really doing here, how we're approaching all of this, as individuals and collectively. So what are we dealing with here exactly? It's late May, early June, 2020. We've all been quarantined around the world, but especially in the U.S. depending on which part of the U.S. you're in. We're all a bit pent up. Some of us have an easier time with that than others. Some of us are really hurting from being furloughed or being forced to work Uh, necessary jobs. Some of our communities are hit harder than others. Some of us feel some guilt about that. And I think we have to look at the current zeitgeist within that context, in which a man named George Floyd died under the boot heel, metaphorically, the knee, literally, of a police officer named Derek Chauvin. And we have it recorded on video for almost 10 minutes. We have the details of this case, which are technical and legal, but we have more importantly, the narrative and the optics of this case, which is police brutality, specifically against a black man. We have this happening in a country with a long and painful history of racism and slavery upon which the country was largely built. And we have a deep communal sense of injustice by this specific incident, but within the context of the Donald Trump presidency, which itself feels for the majority of us, I believe, like an unjust administration. So this is a powder keg that we're looking at. And it's not an isolated incident per se. This comes in a long line of deaths by cop, um, which we're going to get into, a lot of which has fueled the movement of Black Lives Matter, which was very loud and pronounced in the last presidential election leading up to 2016. And we have a few cases surrounding the George Floyd case in our present moment. We have Almount Aubrey, who was shot dead by two Georgian citizens, and we have this weird Burder Cooper story in which a Karen calls or threatens to call the cops on a black man who's merely practicing his hobby of taking pictures in Central Park while she's trying to walk her dog off leash. And Collectively, we're meant to believe that this is the ugly face of current modern racism, the continuing, if not growing, problem of racism in America. If you sense some skepticism in my voice, it's because I'm feeling something like ideology here, the ideology of anti-racism. And look, I'm against racism. But I'm wary of ideologies. They are a religion. They are a narrow lens through which to view the world. And I don't know if that helps us. So this is my contrarian perspective here to challenge this default ideology that I think most of us have. What is racism? Racism is the unfair and unequal treatment of a person or people based on their race or ethnicity or more simply put to treat people worse based on their skin color a more mild form of this might be described as prejudice the internal belief and judgment against other people's skin we also have institutional or structural racism which is the idea that takes the onus off the individual Person being racist and puts it on the systems within a society that disenfranchise and neglect certain races based on laws and procedures. Slavery is the most obvious example of institutionalized racism insofar as it is based on race as it had been in the USA. And I think this is a good opportunity to do a quick history lesson on racism in America specifically, for my non-American listeners, but for all of us to really clarify and understand how we got to where we are now. The New World, the Americas, were, quote, discovered by Christopher Columbus in 1492. He was sailing on behalf of the Queen of Spain to find a spice route to India, and he landed in the Bahamas and, claimed he was in India and called the people there Indians. Christopher Columbus was a pillager, a colonist. He claimed this land for Spain, even though it had people on it. He disrespected them, thought that they were subhuman in some way, that they were easy to shackle and enslave. And he spread this attitude throughout Latin America and the Caribbean, especially in Brazil, which was pillaged immensely under the Portuguese kingdom and still to this day has more descendants of slavery than anywhere by far. But Christopher Columbus's attitudes, while he wasn't in the U.S. proper, as we know it today, trickled into the southern U.S., which is adjacent to the Caribbean, Florida, Georgia, the Carolinas, the deep south of Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Virginia. And these states, these colonies, had a very specific concept of themselves as basically a plantation system, uh, a feudalist system with slaves, which were then shipped from the Atlantic slave trade of Western Africa. And Christianity and the Bible helped define and justify slavery as black people were seen as unequal and inferior, all to buttress the lavish aristocratic lifestyles of Southern plantation owners. The North was defined differently. America has many stories to it, which is why this is so complicated. The Pilgrims settled with the Mayflower uh, in Massachusetts. They were coming for religious freedom. This was the Puritans, the Salem witch trials. They were crazy in their own way, but they weren't uh, living a lifestyle propagated by slavery. They were living a lifestyle of freedom and liberty, essentially. And this is our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. Of course, they also enjoyed the spoils of slavery to some degree, uh, but they also led the abolitionist movement and then, In the 1860s, we have President Abraham Lincoln uh, jumping forward a few, you know, this continued for a few hundred years, but then the abolitionist movement really came to fore, and slavery ended when the North won the Civil War, thus ending, effectively, slavery on the whole continent, or at least within the U.S. So, slavery ended in around 1865, technically speaking. Black... Men and women of this era were now no longer subjugated by such masters and were meant to basically receive some sort of reparations like 40 acres and a mule, for instance, to have their own land to farm and to pursue liberty and property the way that anybody in the US could. This obviously didn't play out very smoothly. We have this period of reconstruction after Lincoln's assassination, in which of course the country fought very viciously about how much freedom or life uh, could really happen for black people at this time. And the black community had their own struggles and issues to sort out their own intellectual debates about whether or not to return to Africa or to build a nation within the US or to assimilate. And all these things kind of panned out in their own ways Liberia was founded by the U.S. Blacks in, on the African continent. We have the Black Belt, which is a swath of land through the southern states, rural and city-oriented. That kind of matches with the Bible Belt, but this is a large voting block of uh, black-majority citizens who are, of course, disenfranchised because of uh, gerrymandering and voter disenfranchisement. Let's put that on hold for now. Essentially, we have a mess. And this mess is exploited by racist policies like all the Jim Crow era stuff, segregation of drinking fountains, segregation of where to sit on a bus, different restaurants for different kinds of folks, different attitudes for you know who you are in society. And it's a strong basically caste system or apartheid basically. And this continued Uh, from 1860s until the 1960s for 100 years, basically, until the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King Jr., an excellent human being who worked peacefully to enact real change through law. The Civil Rights Act passed in 1963, which effectively ended segregationist policies and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 effectively ensured the rights of all people no matter the race, to vote for your own representation. And since then, we haven't really had institutionalized racism explicitly. That ended. That's what Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and the Black Panthers did. This is a historical achievement. They accomplished this. But of course, Change doesn't happen by the snap of your fingers. It's still difficult for some people to fully assimilate. Now, why is that? So, we do have, of course, racism as a concept that persists. And I'm going to break this to you. We probably always will. There will always be some amount of hatred in people's hearts and some amount of people will be corrupted by that hatred. You're not going to eliminate this kind of thing for good. It's like eliminating people's, you know, preferences for different styles and what have you. Some people just might be bigoted. Some people uh, might value in-grouping and excluding others in their lives in some way. And it's not a realistic fight. What's realistic is to work for justice systemically because you're not going to change the mind of every old person set in their ways. But I will say, and I say this with hope and optimism, that racism and bigotry, generally speaking, are passe. They're old fashioned, they're held mostly by older generations who are giving way to newer, more enlightened generations of citizens. And if you are a young person who's outraged by racism and can't believe it exists, like me, that's proof of it. We are the future, and we would not enact racist laws, would we? When I look at the USA, I see mostly the melting pot of Liberty and Republican values Republican in the um, structuralist sense not political party sense who Do offer this kind of opportune opportunity and lifestyle to everyone anyone and everyone which is why the u.s. Is such a rich immigration country because it really does support these ideals of our Constitution so what's the problem then well we have remnants of a broken system we have food deserts which are areas rural or suburban that are largely populated by blacks or other minority groups that are not brought into modern living there's no whole foods but there's not even you know a kroger or any kind of major Market for fresh produce to arrive. So you have something like worse diets in certain communities You have school systems that are Really imbalanced you have better school districts public school districts. You have worse ones you have some private schools You have charter schools you have an education system that is faltering and not reaching everybody Equally now is that being done? in a racist way, on purpose? Is somebody in charge doing that with malice? I doubt it, but this is the kind of change we want to ensure happens. We want to extend the opportunity to succeed in this world as much as we can. I personally believe that the US has done a pretty good job extending that more and more, but it's hard to do that. It takes effort. It takes demand, and It's not that there is some devil boogeyman out there, some, you know, the man stopping it per se, but there are essentially human errors within systems. We should aim to make our systems stronger and better than any of us individually. And when that doesn't happen, we think of it as unjust and that's why we get angry. to localize this, or rather specify this again to the case of George Floyd. This man is living in Minneapolis and he is a perpetrator uh, in the eyes of the police. He is seen as doing something illegal. In this case, using counterfeit money to buy something. You're not allowed to do that. So this apparently requires police action. Maybe the shopkeeper calls the police The police are there they see something happening george floyd had intoxicants in his bloodstream we're not sure yet what those are but let's presume that it's a drug of some sort that affects his behavior maybe he's acting erratically maybe he's acting dangerously we don't know that stuff we only know what we've seen on video which is a man on the ground dying and i totally agree that this is awful that this is disproportionate to the crime he's committed if there was one. And we have this man, Derek Chauvin, which sounds like chauvinist somehow, which is interesting, who's staring into a camera, knowing he's taped and still does this. This man does not speak for us. He is not America. And I I just, I wanna make that clear. A racist, stupid, belligerent cop is not America. We might disagree on that. I know that the argument on the other side might go something like, this is the face of institutional America. This is the problem of the USA, that a policeman like that can do this and kill somebody. I'll counter that he's not getting away with it. We're protesting about it. We're outraged. He's fired. His wife has left him. He will be prosecuted. He might not be convicted because it's very hard to convict a cop for using excessive force because we have to define what excessive force is. And that is a really technical legal issue. So we wanna work on our justice system, which does disproportionately imprison black men. We have to look at our laws like drug possession, which does disproportionately criminalize black men. We have to end the drug war first and foremost, that would solve a lot of the problems that we have with race and race relations. We need to put body cameras on all cops and make sure that they're on. We need to train cops better to use jujitsu and better holds and, you know, secure actions physically that don't lead to death that aren't lethal we need better training we need better vetting of who becomes a cop and why we need to believe in a protect and serve attitude and you know i grew up really distrustful of cops very antagonistic in my punk rock years i hated cops i didn't want to get pulled over i didn't want to see them i didn't i resented that i could be doing something wrong by maybe smoking weed or driving 10 miles above the speed limit. And I didn't ever appreciate that I was seen immediately as a perpetrator or criminal. But as I've grown and matured, I can see the point of view of somebody tasked with the responsibility of patrolling society and making sure that it's a safe, prosperous place for everybody. And that Individuals might threaten that. And we all know that. We've all been in situations where we probably wanted the cops around, where we wanted protection. I live in Berlin, Germany now, and I actually see German police as much more upstanding and humane, better trained, better vetted, people going into that service field for the right reasons to maintain law and order in a healthy, productive way, not authoritarian, not with such machismo, you know, it's funny, like this is not a gender issue, fortunately, we're not talking about the the sex wars right now, but this is something like toxic masculinity. And I don't like the overuse of that term. I think it's thrown about way too carelessly, but Derek Chauvin and George Floyd have some toxic behaviors and we're all flawed. You know, here we have two men. I place way more of the blame on Derek Chauvin, of course, but it's not that George Floyd is a virtuous, totally innocent hero. And I don't think we should make him out to be. I'm not, I don't know George Floyd and I can't pretend to try and martyr him because he is merely a victim of a heinous act but his death is one of 8,000 a day. There are a lot of deaths to mourn. Of course, during coronavirus, we know this, but even those coronavirus deaths are a drop in the bucket when we put them up against heart disease, suicide, cancer, traffic incidents. There's a lot of injustice in our world. I think this kind of injustice grabs us by our throats, if you will, because it's so visible and clear that something has gone wrong. And I want to offer that we can address those wrongs. We can correct them if we're focused on doing that, if we're clear that we want reformation in policing, that we demand reform in these toxic police departments. We need to vote in better commissioners and mayors to oversee competent policing, right? We need to demand that our cops work for us. And when we say us, we mean all of us, not just the wealthy, not just the privileged or the Caucasian, we need it to work for everyone. So on the subject of race, this is where it gets really tricky. I'll step forward with my own situation just for transparency. I'm coming at this topic in a unique way. I identify as post-racial, and that I'm sure sounds ridiculous to some of you um, because it's silly maybe or too privileged, but I don't really know how else to identify. People ask me a lot throughout my life. I've been asked this pointedly or ambiguously I can take those questions as a microaggression if I want. And sometimes it's felt more aggressive than others. Sometimes it's felt ignorant. Lots of times it's merely curious and humans are curious about each other. I am mixed race. I have an interesting background. Uh, I'm fourth generation on both sides. So I identify as an American, but America is a huge continent, essentially North America. So I really identify as a Californian and a New Yorker where I grew up, uh, my family coming from both places. My mom's ancestry is Korean, but she's a Korean American, but mostly just an American. She doesn't speak Korean, she doesn't cook Korean, she doesn't identify with anything Korean. My father, his heritage is Armenian, which is a very tiny nation in the trans-Caucasian, region of the world, south of Russia and north of Iran, part of the former USSR, part of what was once Anatolian Eastern Europe or the Roman Empire, but can often be described as Middle Eastern as well. But it's a Christian nation. It's uh, on very bad terms with its neighbors, which are largely Muslim. It had a genocide committed against it by the Ottoman Empire, who has seized power in that region. And that's a tricky past to come from. The Koreans also, by the way, were violently subjugated by the Japanese in my mom's family history. So I can very well sympathize with racism, with ethnic cleansing, and the worst of how race and race relations can get that we've obviously seen typified in the in the 20th century by the third Reich of Adolf Hitler and the genocide against the Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, etc. So, I'm coming at this from an interesting point of view. I don't identify as Armenian, I don't identify as Korean. My skin tone is darker than a typical white person, so I don't know if I can call myself white. But on the U.S. Census, I do tick white and other, because I'm not sure what else to say. Technically, Armenians are Caucasian, white, but socially, they might be discriminated against as an olive-skinned or tan-skinned people of color. Maybe I should be identifying as a person of color. Maybe it would even afford me some points in today's social justice-obsessed worlds. Maybe I should identify as Asian. Maybe Armenia can even be described as West Asian. Maybe I'm 100% Asian, but I know that I'm not. I've never lived in Asia. I don't understand Asia nearly as well as I understand the West. I'm not Asian, and if someone told me I was, I would probably take that as a microaggression for you know, trying to put me in a box that I don't belong in. Race is complicated, and it's too simplistic to reduce ourselves to our skin color. It's ridiculous. I choose to live in the Martin Luther King adage that we should be judged not by the color of our skin, but the content of our character. And that's what I'm aiming to do here. I'm not judging Derek Chauvin for being white or even a man. I'm judging him for being belligerent and totally out of line for, you know, even if he's having a bad day or if he's especially annoyed by crime, that nothing excuses his behavior and that he's got to be ousted from policing, totally, and maybe serve jail time. But it's not because he's white. It's not because he's part of a racist system. It's because he's a bad cop. And this is an easy thing to point out. I do want to defend all the good policing out there. I want to defend all the good white people, in quotes, because most of us are good. Most of us want the same general peace and prosperity for everyone. We want to live and let live. We want the best for our neighbors and our fellow people in society, across the board, regardless of race or any other identity, politic. That's most of us, guys. It's most of us. There are just a few hundred thousand people that actually harbor disgusting prejudices, the people that marched in Charlottesville. It's a small contingent in a very large country, a very large one it's the size of Europe, guys, the USA. Now, again, we're not going to snuff out all racism. It's not really possible, and that shouldn't be our aim. What we should be doing is advocating compassion and respect for each other. And when I see protesters in the street with such signs like that, I applaud them or honk, what we whatever we do. But when I see signs like white silence equals violence or a complicity. I'm a little confused by this. What are we tasking each other to really do here? What is our role individually and collectively? Most of us spend our time on social media, even more so in quarantine days. So we express our virtue, we signal our, our beliefs through memes, through trends posting a black rectangle on instagram uh, posting black lives matter articles on facebook and shaming people that don't on twitter and this is how we live now what does this accomplish i know that on a personal level it accomplishes something for sure we do it for reasons but those reasons are largely personal we feel good when we do that We make it clear to ourselves and to our peers. I am against this. I am for that. I'm against racism. Who isn't? I am for compassion and sympathy. Yes. That's great. But why do we get mad at ourselves for other things like living our lives, like still posting our food pics or our... You know, travels and vacations, our loved ones, our pets. Is this now taboo or verboten? Why is that? Must we be silenced only so certain voices can be heard now? That sounds authoritarian to me. That sounds counterproductive. But this is the tone of our our modern lives, isn't it? I was shamed. Uh, on social media for being tone-deaf, for daring to post something against the grain a bit, for pointing out that there is this deeper, poetic, spiritual energy that flows through all things, that nature is ultimately indifferent, but that we interpret the energy in the world as either violent or virtuous, and it makes sense that we might react to something like this as an inherent injustice, and we demand something more humane and in line with our values. That's right. But it's important to recognize that we live in a society and that society is quite prosperous, that a rising tide lifts all shifts, that the poor are much better off than they used to be. Now, I don't say that naively, expecting everyone to just be happy with their lot in life. That's ridiculous. All of us strive for more. And when we see inequality, it's really unfair. And I definitely hate it. I want really liberal progressive economic policies because of this. And now we're gonna get into really the main thrust of our zeitgeist, which is inequality and injustice. It's not about the cops specifically. And it's definitely not about race, even though race is a component. It's about wealth and how much is being accumulated at the very, very top, and how many people are left out of our American or global projects. We have a lot of hope. We have a lot of good to still do, and we're doing that. We're ending diseases. We're, you know, we're giving... International aid, we're fighting a lot of old conceptions of what societies should look like in traditional senses, and we're trying to modernize the planet, hopefully, fight global warming. We're doing a lot of good things, but there are still people left out. Okay, that's true. What do we do about it? Do we just fight each other and call each other names? Do we point fingers? Do we throw out platitudes? Do we, you know, how are we really solving and trying to resolve problems? We need to fight for real things. We need to vote for candidates that really represent what we want. We need to work within our communities to get those things. Now, when I see looting in the streets, I find it disturbing, personally. I see how smashing glass to private property might not aggrieve me and my body, but if you take it to its logical extension, that amount of anger and selfishness that causes somebody to break a a window and take something and run away, that's a dangerous position. It's a danger to society and it's a danger to us. We could be in that line of fire. We could be living next door. Our window Feasibly could be next. So I'm against looting. I've seen arguments for looting that, you know, big businesses on main streets represent society very much, and that if you want to fight the system, a very visible attack against it is a good way to do it. And maybe you are standing up for the underprivileged in doing so. You're definitely standing up for yourself and getting yours. And I totally relate to this urge of wanting to take what you feel rightfully should be yours. Maybe you're not paid enough. Maybe you were furloughed from coronavirus. Maybe you have a subpar education through no fault of your own and don't see a better way to get ahead. All those things can be true. Looting and rioting are really base instincts in reaction to those issues. And I wanna sympathize with them. But I also wanna live in an orderly society, even if I don't want to necessarily be demanded to be an orderly person. I want freedom. I want my personal freedom and agency. I resent a curfew put upon me. I resent a blockade telling me where I can't go. I resent, frankly, being quarantined. But if I see a greater purpose to it, like, you know, reducing the amount of people that catch a virus, I can happily participate in that. I don't love being told through social media to do things because it feels just like policing. It feels like the kind of top down authoritarianism that I grew up resenting, only now it's coming from my peer group. I'm being wagged a finger at I'm being told what to do. I know what to do, I can be a responsible person, I can decide things for myself, and I trust you can too. So this is the tricky thing that we deal with on the political compass. We want our own personal agency, but we want to demand others to do certain things. Don't you see the disconnect there? We want our way and we really don't want others to have their way. That's a balancing act. That's what politics is. I'm not even sure what arguments right now are being made on the right, so forgive me for that. Um, I think if I was to turn on Fox News, I might see something like, you know, America in crisis, uh, looters and violent protesters are coming after you our fabric of the system, you know, the fabric of our system is decaying. We need um, a law and order president. We need, you know, God and country put first. And that is, I think, how we explain Donald Trump's odd recent publicity stunt of standing in front of a a church holding a Bible upside down like a real fool, as usual. Um, But he's obviously pandering to a conservative base that really is threatened by chaos. Now look, we can disagree, but chaos is scary to a lot of people. That's just a fact. There are people that are really averse to seeing violence in the streets. Now maybe you're young enough to see that as more exciting. Maybe you're leftist enough or underprivileged enough to identify with that and just want the system to burn down so that we build something else that seems more fair. But ultimately and overall, we have a system that is probably better than anything ever attempted by anyone ever. And that system grows and reaches further and further. We call it the West, but we see places like China industrializing and extending democracy, extending a middle class. China's still not a real democracy. India's a far away, far away from that level of industrialization, but they're working on their political goals as well. We see the world improving, guys. It really is improving in the grand scheme. And I, I just feel like reminding ourselves of that because when I look at the anger now, it feels disproportionate, it really does. We're not living in the 1950s. We're not. Things are better now. Well, look, I wanna say they're better than they ever have been, but I also know that that's not true because in 2006, when I watched Brokeback Mountain and Crash, race was not the crazy topic it is now. And we've somehow gone back a step. Even though we had eight years of Barack Obama Best president in my lifetime. We now have Donald Trump, worst president ever, arguably. Uh, I personally thought George W. Bush was worse, but that's another argument. We have really bad relationships with ourselves, with each other, and it's not just race. We have bad gender relations, confusing gender relations. We have bad, uh, you know, class relations, which is totally justified we have bad relationships with our friends and family even and we have bad relationships with people we interface with in society with the barista or the waiter or the you know the public parking officer it's difficult to get along eye to eye with each other all the time and i want to conclude with another topic on this, or I want to segue, I guess, through a revisiting of so many bad relationships through the police and other communities, starting with Sandra Bland, because I'm thinking of the Malcolm Gladwell book, How to Talk to Strangers. We have a character called Sandra Bland, who was driving from the Great Lakes region to Texas for a new job. She's black, She's pulled over by a police officer, White, for speeding. This officer is a hothead. He has a history of giving egregious tickets. They don't talk properly with each other. They're missing each other somehow. And this leads to her being arrested and dying in jail, which is insane. And Malcolm Gladwell makes sense of this by pointing out that we don't always know how to talk to each other. The cop doesn't know how to talk to every individual he pulls over. He has a kind of rubric, right? Now that's a problem, we need to work on that. But if not equally, citizens have an obligation to interface with police a certain way. We need to know how to be pulled over, how to be arrested without resisting, without fighting back, it's not appropriate to reach for a cop's gun, for instance, while being arrested. That is how somebody like Alton Sterling in 2016 was shot dead. Or somebody like Philandro Castile could be killed. Now, a lot of these cases are murky. The case of Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy with a toy gun, dead by a police officer. Eric Garner, strangled in a bodega. The I can't breathe phenomenon, killed by Staten Island police officer Daniel Pantaleo, who was acquitted of homicide by a grand jury. We have Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, who really kicked off Black Lives Matter in 2014. He was an 18-year-old shot by a cop But Michael Brown was seen doing criminal activity and tried to grab the officer's gun. That's not a good strategy. I don't want to blame somebody like Michael Brown for his own death. That would be awful. But we all need to know how to interface with each other, and probably especially authority, authority that has a right to kill when necessary. And this is an issue that we are really afraid to get into. We're afraid to face the issues within the black community, a community disproportionately imprisoned, but that also is a community that disproportionately commits crime, that disproportionately resents policing within its community snitches get stitches, gangs war over territory, possibly to sell drugs, which should be legal, that would solve a lot. Possibly without fathers, a really gross stereotype that statistically is held up, unfortunately. These are kind of topics that I probably shouldn't be making or addressing, but people like Coleman Hughes, a brilliant Columbia undergraduate doing a lot of work on race, or Glenn Lowry and his podcast, uh, John McWhorter, a writer for The Atlantic, or Thomas Sowell, um, a brilliant economist who's more on the conservative end of things. These, lo- these men are largely centrists, and they're black, and they have a lot to say about how black Americans can really get ahead, and how a lot of this noise distracts us from that. A lot of this is just static. A lot of this is hating and fighting each other without a real aim in mind, where we just call each other names because we say the wrong things, maybe. We're not hearing each other properly, are we? My goal is to hear and to be heard. And I'm listening. I'm seeing anger. I'm seeing frustration at a broken system. But the system is broken in small specific ways. This is not a system of slavery. This is not a system of segregation. This is not a system of turning down every black applicant for a position. This is a system of minor flare-ups of problems that continue and exacerbate, like, you know, maybe lack of education for how to get a CV in order, maybe these kind of things. You know, I'm just putting that out there as a mild case. But we need to really specify what we want to fix and then do it. And I just don't think it justifies the amount of outrage and anger we're seeing. So that part confuses me. I think it's an excuse uh, for some of us to really blow off steam, to finally get out on the streets. We shamed each other for trying to go out on the streets to get a haircut or go to the beach. But now we're letting ourselves on the streets, even though you know we're still not quite phasing into normal life again after quarantine. We're excusing ourselves on the streets for this because this is deemed important, more important than... Flattening the curve, we have to end racism now. We're not going to do that. We're going to make it look worse. We're probably, possibly, I worry, help Trump get reelected, if we, if we cause too much strife in the U.S. These are my thoughts at the moment. I'm continually hoping that we fight for our morals for what's right. I'm happy that our anger can get the attention of the Minneapolis Police Department. I'm hoping that governors and mayors are paying attention, but we still do need to empower police to do their job. They just have to do their job a lot better, a lot with a lot more respect and a lot more care toward human beings and in the eye of a public that demands the most of them. So let's keep that fight going. Let's specify what we're after. Let's hear each other. We don't need to silence anyone. I would even love to listen to a Charlottesville racist white man on the topic, not to agree with him, but to hear why he might feel aggrieved. And I know that sounds insane because that's not the person we need to be listening to per se. His voice isn't more valuable than somebody like george floyd's not at all but if we really aim to improve our society and move forward and really progress this human project nobody can be left out of that conversation we can focus on black lives but we still need the context focus how better education better justice system let's do those things and we'll all benefit all right. Some of these were hot takes. Uh, maybe I've stepped on some feet. I hope my goals are clear. This is a philosophy podcast. I'm thinking openly and aloud, and I hope it is allowed by you, the listener. I welcome any feedback, uh, however you want to get at me. My uh, social media is Keith Pictures on Instagram, and I'm on Patreon, uh, Keith Telfayan, Uh, hit me up, I'd love any support, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Until then, ciao.